Welcome back, everyone, to part four of our interview with author David Beers as we cover the story, Immunity for Murder. Let's cover the trial that ended up uh, handing her a sentence of 25 years to life. How yeah. did that trial go? What was the most frustrating thing for you uh, as defense? Where did you think that trial was going to go? Obviously, you believed uh, that justice would prevail and that she'd be declared innocent, but it wasn't to be. What happened? Yeah, I mean, it, we were... We were uh... My, myself and the attorney were very uh, optimistic that, that we had a very strong defense and uh, that she would be exonerated because this was just too bizarre. To, uh, we just didn't feel there was uh, enough evidence for them to meet their burden of proof. So the, the case uh, went to trial. Um, yeah, I, I was disappointed by a few things, encouraged by others, but uh, Delusia started right out lambasting Veronica's character. And then he calls the, he started out, part of his strategy was to get the jury to really hate Veronica. So, so he calls the cry ladies and, and lines them up and has them tell all of their egregious allegations against Veronica. All of the, all of the ones that had been investigated previously and ruled to be unfounded, but puts them in and they, they explain it all and they even, they even exaggerate and, uh, and make it sound even worse. The difficult part with that was when we tried to uh, impeach those witnesses, uh, uh, the court wouldn't allow us to bring in those CPS reports or the CPS workers who had authored those reports. Why? Uh, it was it was rather it was rather strange. Uh, 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 prior to the trial or, or some somewhere during the trial, the. The CPS attorney, uh, the, the counselor for the for CPS, had filed a motion under the CPS law, claiming that those reports and 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 shouldn't be allowed, and, and the testimony of the caseworker shouldn't be allowed because it's privileged information, it's confidential. And uh, initially, the the judge uh, disagreed and said that uh, you know any any confidentiality that was there had already been breached because. CPS had already turned them over to the police, and the police in turn had turned them over to the defense. But they continued the arguments in, in chambers with the judge, and both of them making pretty good arguments, both sides. But the judge uh, asked him to put all their arguments in writing, and he would review it and examine the case law. And he came back in a couple of days later and said he couldn't find any case law that would allow him to let the jury see these things. So those reports were excluded uh, from testimony. So that was a devastating blow uh, because we really relied on being able to impeach the witnesses with those reports. So the jury was left to believe that their bizarre allegations were true. So that really set the stage for them to really dislike Veronica Taft. Now the judge could have turned that around, right? The the judge could have said, yes, we're gonna allow that. You can cross-examine these uh, CPS witnesses. But he didn't. He, he, he could have. Uh, I, I can't. I, I, I didn't like the decision, but I can't. Uh, but I have to respect it. I, I think he made his decision based on the way the law was written. That, that was the other thing. They, they, they agreed that the, the law was a little vague in how it should be applied or interpreted. And, and all three, the, the prosecutor, the defense and the court all agreed that this was an unusual situation and they really weren't familiar with uh, with how this should be applied because it was just so unusual. So we, we're stuck with that. And yeah, like I said, we would have preferred to be able to challenge them just like you would any other would with those reports. But because they were unfounded, they're they're placed in a 
classification of being privileged and and sealed, and they're not allowed. Were these were these ladies, these cry ladies, who gave the false testimony, and CPS workers, who undoubtedly must have given false testimony because they had already investigated and found that Veronica didn't commit any of these acts. Were they subject to civil suit, to civil liability later? Did Veronica ever sue any of these people, or was she allowed to? No, I don't think any of them were sued. I don't think the caseworkers testified specifically about these particular allegations. So it was just uh, the so, neighbors that Delucia yeah, just pulled the, up. Delucia. They pretty went on challenge. I mean, David Butler, the attorney, tried to challenge them, but they just they just kind of bolstered uh, their testimony uh, even further. Uh, because we didn't have this information to challenge them with, which would have, you know, pretty much uh, impeached them and, and silenced them. But so the jury, like I said, was left to believe that what they said was true. So they they portrayed Veronica as this evil monster right from the get go, and that was that was that was their strategy, Delusha's strategy. Part one, right? And, strategy part one, and then after that, he was after the time so, of death. So then, so they they kind of set the stage for what was to come regarding the murder. How about the, how about the investigation? Were you able to tear apart the thoroughness of the investigation? Oh, we did that. We, we, we tried to do that with each individual uh, police witness that testified, like the, the crime scene investigators, the, uh, the interviewing investigators, the lead, the lead investigator, the detective sergeant in charge of the investigator. So yeah, we, uh, we pinned them all down on a lot of things, and uh, they offered some pretty bizarre testimony in, in a number of ways. One of the, the hugest uh, things that they testified to that was false, they, they, they know it was false, was the, they, they got up there and, and denied knowing anything about the time of death. And, and, and that just never made any sense to me whatsoever. I mean, that's, that's one of the first things that... Uh, uh, that an investigation like this uh, tries to determine, so that you know what what time frame you're you're looking at here. And in this case, you've got a a 12 hour plus window between the time Lyric was last seen alive and when he's discovered. So obviously, you're gonna you're gonna want to try to narrow that down. And Dr. Terzian did that for him. He he estimated that it was like three or four in the morning. But all, all of the prosecution witnesses that were called, all the police officers, every one of them denied knowing anything about the time of death. But one of, one of, the, one of the investigators who had, who had retired before the trial, uh, Sergeant Eggleston, the defense called him. He had something totally different to say. He said he did know about the time of death and he shared it with the other investigators during daily case briefings. Now, now that that makes a lot more sense. So these guys just got up there and looked at the jury and and lied to them about knowing about the time of death. That that, that really disturbed. Oh, it, it's also amazing how Turgeon went weak in the knees again, uh, went because the one thing that oh, could yeah. have blown that apart, the, at least the time factor, the one thing that could have blown that apart was the contents of the food in the stomach. Uh, and he says, "quote," when he was asked. Turgeon realized where the questioning was headed, but didn't wait for the final part of the question before saying, I couldn't even tell what the food was. I mean, I'd tried to find someone who would analyze that and tell me because I wanted to know what he ate to figure out when he ate it. But I couldn't do it. He sub does, does, doesn't he submit that, that, the contents to, to a lab and then the lab provides him with the report 
Why couldn't he do it? Was he was his hands tied behind his back or too busy? No, there's John. There's no reason to have done that. There, I mean, there isn't a, a crime lab that I'm aware of, or or even a private lab that, that doesn't have that capability. I mean, and and pathologists use those labs all the time to do that, whether it's to uh, look for uh, drugs or poisons or some other substance in in, in the stomach contents that would help them in their uh, analysis of the of, uh, during the autopsy. So that that's that's a routine function. And uh, for him to say I couldn't find anybody, uh, that's not. I can't believe the jury wasn't sharpening their pencils at that point, saying hey, something's wrong here. You know. Well, you know, you know, I don't put too much blame on the jury because of the way the case was presented to them. You know, with the cry ladies starting right out attacking her character, you know, so they, they didn't like her right from the get-go. And then the very next witness was Dr. Terzian. And of course he testifies about Lyric's injuries and then they put the pictures right up on the big screen. And, you know, once you see those yeah. pictures, I mean, uh, even for myself as an experienced investigator, you see a little two-year-old beaten like that, it, uh, it's hard to see. And uh, so the jury, you know, when they saw those, you know, I, I could tell by the look in their eyes and their glances at Veronica that from that point on, uh, she, she was done. And I don't think it mattered what anybody said thereafter. Uh, they weren't going to let her go. Obviously, as the defense, you were trying to shift the jury's attention to Pratt. Is that correct? And, and, yeah, absolutely. And why, I mean, wasn't uh, the jury, why wasn't the jury accepting any of that? I, I don't know. Yeah. It, it never made any sense to me. You know, we were we aggressively attacked them pushing back the time of death. We emphasized Veronica's alibi. They just, they just weren't paying attention or just didn't care. And then uh, both of the uh, crime scene investigators testified during the trial, and Dave Butler re really went after them about what they didn't do uh, at the crime scene. And, and uh, <laughs> both of both of them said that. Well, we, we didn't know it was a homicide. You know, that, that was their excuse, you know, <laughs> which, which totally, totally contradicted the lead investigator who testified that, hey, it would be remiss if we didn't treat it like a homicide from the beginning. And then, and then the one technician also testified, oh, or it could have been a SIDS death. <laughs> I mean, th that was that. Uh, my eyes must have rolled on that one. Because, you know, one look at that baby and, and you, you don't have to be a doctor or a police officer to take one look at that baby and know it's it's not a SIDS death. This kid was beaten badly. Some of the most bizarre testimony was from Sergeant Michelle Stebbins. Yeah, well, she was she was the one that said that about the SIDS death. Yeah. And then she was the one that examined the diaper and, and said there was no value to it. Said, it, yeah, it could have been from anybody in the household. That's ridiculous. And she's still on the job. What else? What else can you say about that trial? The outcome of the trial? I can't tell you how many times I rolled my eyes and uh, shook my head in disgust to hearing some of that testimony, no, knowing they were lying or just saying what needed to be said to help the cause. And they do it with a straight face. That that was troubling. We'll return to the story right after these sponsor messages. And now back to part four, Immunity for Murder, our interview with David M. Beers, the Veronica Taft story. 
David, let's finish up the trial and the verdict and then move to the time between the trial and the appeal. So as the trial ended, you know, the both both sides made their closing arguments. Uh, uh, David Butler went first for the defense and, and he, he made all of the, the right arguments very aggressively and uh, very convincingly, in, in my opinion. But then DeLucia came on, and in all fairness, he he, uh, he did a powerful closing as well, albeit kind of a warped version of uh, the evidence and Veronica's character. Uh, and, and he said some kind of bizarre things <laughs> that didn't make any sense to me, but I don't, I don't, I don't know what the jury was thinking, but I, I, like I said, I just kind of rolled my eyes. But in the end, uh, you know, once closings were done, it went to the jury, and they were, they were only out uh, less than four hours. And when they walked back in, you know, they were, the looks on their face were pretty somber. So I said, no, this is not good. And uh, they found her guilty on everything. So she, uh, she went back to prison, and then s- sentencing was uh, a while later. And, uh, and they sentenced her to, you know, 25 to life. That wasn't unexpected. So that was that was kind of a brutal uh, to hear their prosecutor uh, during sentencing, uh, but she was sentenced to 25 years to life, and, uh, and then shipped off to uh, state prison uh, within a day or so uh, after the uh, after she was sentenced. She went to uh, Bedford Hills uh, Correctional Facility down in Westchester County, New York, which is a prison for female inmates, and it houses about you know 900 inmates. Not a, not a pleasant place. There was obviously going to be an appeal here. How long did it take to put that appeal together, and how strong was it? Yeah, of course, uh, you know, right after the, the verdict, uh, you know, Dave Butler filed his intent uh, to appeal. Uh, but ordinarily, uh, the trial attorney doesn't always write the, uh, write the appeal. It, it usually gets assigned to, to another attorney. And, and that was the case here. But it was a long time before that happened. You know, they, they take their sweet old time. Finally, it, the case got assigned to a, a local attorney right here in Binghamton. His name was Norbert Higgins. Uh, I didn't even know who he was at the time. And I, I wasn't real happy. Uh, well, I, I couldn't say not happy, but I was a little concerned that, you know, the bulk of his work was like family court rather than criminal. But he had the case, and, uh, you know, I spoke with him a couple of times just to offer my assistance if he... Uh, even if he just needed to ask a question or something. But it took a long time, and it took several months before he even got the transcripts of the trial. And then I, I would check in with him periodically to see how it was going. And he said he finally he'd gotten the transcripts and went through them and was uh, making notes of all the appeal issues and making good progress. So uh, it was good to hear that. Then time went on and on and on and still hadn't heard anything. And so it was, it was a long time before he finally finished and filed the brief uh, for the appeal. And, and he identified, uh, you know, he, he sent a copy to me and I read it over. So he, uh, I didn't agree with everything, but he, when it came to the major points, he he'd, uh, nailed it pretty well. And so our, our hope now was that the appellate court would agree. But, you know, the waiting game begins. Uh, so now, now the appellate court has it. Now they got to review it and, and make a decision. And who knows how long that's going to take. So the waiting was difficult. So in the, in the meantime, I, I would correspond with Veronica once in a while in prison. Oftentimes it was just a Christmas card or a note 
to let her know uh, the progress of the appeal or something like that. Not much. And she'd always write back, usually a lengthy letter, telling me how uh, how much she missed her kids. And at one time she uh, was hoping that those who testified falsely against her would would step up and tell the truth. And she said she'd be willing to forgive them if they did. In another letter, she uh, she asked me if I could find some pictures of her kids in our case file. And we had some. So I went through them, and I, uh, there were several, probably 50. And I found several, including a few of Lyric you know, during his second birthday. And so I put all those photos together and sent them to her. And I knew it would probably make her cry. And it did. She wrote a letter back thanking me and said it did make her cry. And, and again, how much she missed her kids. So, <clears throat> But finally, it wasn't until December 1st. 2016, I believe, the appellate court decision came out. You know, Dave Butler's office had been following the uh, the decisions regularly online, checking in every few days to see if there was any decision. And I finally got a call from his office and said that uh, the decision had just come out. <laughs> so I, and he, he called me personally, and I, usually it's his paralegal, but he, he called me personally and told me, and uh, and I said, uh, well, are we going back to trial? <laughs> He said, no, it's better than that. He said, uh, it was unanimous. They, they, they threw it out. It, it, it's over. And, uh, and I said, well, you mean we don't have to go back to trial? He says, no. Uh, it says right here. Uh, it was against the weight of the evidence. It's over. <laughs> so I, I was kind of blown away. And uh, so the, the appellate court threw out the, the manslaughter and, and uh, murder convictions and uh, uh, and then, then they went on to explain why, and they really, they really blasted the, the prosecution and the police for the theory and evidence and methods they used, uh, including the, you know, the time of death and Veronica's alibi, the jailhouse snitch Jesse Knoll, and then, and then they made it a point to, uh, to point to Chucky Pratt, and and point out the the issue regarding giving him immunity. And they also uh, found uh, Dr. Terzian to be uh, kind of incredible, you know, to claim that there could have been a 50% error rate in his, his estimated time of death. So it, it was a really a bombshell type of appellate court decision. And a very rare decision too, is that correct? Extremely rare, extremely rare. I, I, I'd never seen one uh, in my career. I've seen cases come back for a retrial, but, but never... Uh, thrown out in its entirety so it was really rare but it was but it, it was really reaffirming because the, the the decision their decision which was unanimous uh, addressed just about every issue we had argued in in the trial and so it reaffirmed our our defense and then they added some of their own it was it was great and about a week later uh, Veronica got released she should have been released a little sooner but they they kind of balked a little bit but finally an attorney stepped up and and said, hey, no, she's she's done. You got to let her go. So they did. So she got out, and now she had to start over. She found a boyfriend, and uh, they found a place up um, upstate New York and uh, started putting her life back together, started fighting to get her kids back. And uh, eventually, uh, you know, she had called David Butler and told him where she was and how to get a hold of her and, and permission to share her number with me. And I ended up calling her, and we talked for a little bit, and she was telling me how 
She was trying to get her kids back, put her life back together. And then I, I kind of left it at that for a while. We talked a little bit about the appellate court decision and uh, how impressed she was with that and uh, so thankful for it. And uh, then I didn't talk to her again for about three years. And then finally I called her back and uh, I, I was working on another case. So I, I was pretty busy for a while, but I finally called her back because I decided I wanted to write her story. And uh, she invited me up to her home. I went up there and it was right during the right during the pandemic, but that was okay with her. So I, I went up there and she introduced me to her family and showed me her house. And we talked for half a day, told me about life in prison, the struggle to get her kids back, which was brutal. <laughs> but but I was really I was really kind of blown away when when the when the topic came up about uh, the cry ladies and Jesse Noel and, and there was other things but uh, she, she was you know I, I told her you know during the trial Dave Butler was uh, often referred to the cry ladies as the yahoos <laughs> so when they reminded her of that she kind of chuckled and she said by the way she said you know they came up here. And they apologized. They told me that, you know, the police had them believing that I killed Lyric and and they needed their help. And and uh, they were asking them to, to say things and uh, it just kind of snowballed from there. And they said they just they just couldn't live with what they'd done. And they got into drugs real bad. And uh, so they they tracked her down and went up and apologized. And she said, you know, once they explained all that to me. It all made sense, and and I forgave them, you know. And I, <laughs> and then we we turned to uh, Jesse Noel, and I said, well, you know, I think Jesse Noel uh, kind of threw you under the bus here. And she's, well, you're probably not going to believe this, but he called and apologized too. He <laughs> said, you're kidding. I said, no. She said he called and said he, you know, he was he uh, claimed that they were gonna they were gonna charge him with murder, and they were. Uh, uh, you know, he was afraid of going back to prison, and uh, so he so he apologized as well. It sounds like she's uh, she could have a civil suit there, right? Well, well, she she has she has filed a notice of claim against the state okay. for wrongful conviction, uh, which is pending. We'll return tomorrow yep. with the conclusion, part five of "Immunity for Murder: The Veronica Taft Story" with David M. Beers, and some things I'd like to point out here at the end of part four. There's a lot in the book that we didn't cover here. The first thing that comes to my mind is that the trial is very, very deeply and well covered here in the book. And we only really just breeze through it here in part four. The other thing is the actual decision of the appellate court. That's uh, given word for word. And David is so right that not only did they pick up on a lot of things that the defense had worked so hard on, but they also went deeper and were able to make some of their own conclusions, which were correct. And that really did uh, lay a lot of irresponsibility on the state with regard to the prosecution. And it's uh, we've had this great twist here in part four where we find out that uh, all charges were dropped against her. A very, very rare circumstance in trial history. We've got a we're going to discuss the defense's theory of the ruthless killer who they believe is Chucky Pratt. And a final story about an imaginary friend. We'll return with part five. Tomorrow evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, and don't miss it.